Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 227 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Good to be back on with you as always. Um, Just before we uh, begin, we will quickly review the month-to-date and year-to-date performance numbers of the major market indices that we track, and this data is from YCharts, and as of the market close on November 15th. S&P 500 index up 7.4% for the month of November and up 17% year-to-date. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 5.9% for the month and up 5.6% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 9.7% for the month and up 34.8% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 8.7% for the month and up 2.5% for the year. And the All World X United States ETF by Vanguard up 6.7% for the month and up 6.9% for the year. Three-month Treasury rate at 5.53%, the two-year Treasury rate at 4.9%, and the 10-year Treasury rate sitting at five, or excuse me, 4.53%. Look at those month-to-date numbers on equities. Yeah, it's been a pretty strong uh, rally off of the lows in late October. So in essence, you had three down months, three and a half down months in the market, and it made all that up in 14 days. Yeah, almost pretty much. Yeah. People should be listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. more. (laughs) And uh, some of that, uh, Matt, driven by some of the inflation readings that we've gotten the past couple of weeks and with the Fed, uh, what they have said with their uh, forecast for the next several months. Um, But the latest inflation readings came in uh, below estimates on uh, Tuesday, just two days ago, and the market rallied uh, significantly. So, And I have a piece on that in a little bit that's going to break down all those subcomponents. I think you and the listeners are going to love it. So CPI year over year uh, fell to 3.2% from 3.7% last month. That's a huge drop. Yeah, Take a step back. Yeah. That's a huge drop. And uh, came in below estimates of uh, 3.3%. And then core CPI, very similarly, uh, year over year, fell to 4% from 4.1% last month and came in below estimates of 4.1%. And the last thing I wanted to note, Matt, is that the odds of a rate cut in March uh, after this inflation data came out rose from uh, 11% to 28%. So... A lot of people, or at least the market, expecting uh, the Fed to be done, at least for right now. I would agree. And I think the narrative of this market, the next couple of months, we've been talking about it, is going to be when the Fed starts cutting. And I think you're going to continue to see the interest rate futures market in Chicago fluctuate on this. But I'm going to call it for what it is, probably sometime in spring. If I had to give you my best guess, sometime in spring is probably when I think we're going to see the first quarter of a point rate cut. Yeah. Yeah, so that'll be uh, probably the most widely uh, watched item moving into 2024, if that was my best guess. But 
um, yeah, at least for right now, uh, interest rates taking a little bit of a breather, uh, which obviously has been a, a major tailwind for, for stocks. And yes, sir. I don't think any of us should be surprised because, again, you look back at seasonality, you know, August and September tend to be pretty weak. Uh, and then the fourth quarter tends to be pretty strong. So regardless of what's going on and what's causing these movements, it's not abnormal for the market to be acting the way it has pretty much all year. Yeah. And I will say, you know, remind our listeners and viewers, you said this on the podcast many times, we're entering the seasonally most strong three months of the year. And we're also entering seasonally the strongest six months of the year. Mm -hmm. And so we can't ignore that. We're also from a seasonality standpoint of the four year presidential election cycle. That's another thing that potentially has a tailwind for the market. So from the seasonality side of it, we're not fighting the current. Right. Yeah, we're swimming, swimming with the current right now. Uh, first thing I had, Matt, was a blog post from Ben Carlson on October 27th titled, The Crash Callers Won't Save You. Um, so, you know, I think we've kind of beaten this horse to death over this year, Matt, talking about, you know, people that are just always bearish on the market when the market is up really three out of every four years doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right? I know. And it's interesting because Wall Street in general has been pretty negative all year, too. We, we, we're kind of the outliers. Right. So um, I just want to read you a piece and, and kind of get your opinion on this. I would love so, to. So uh, Ben started off by saying, here's something Henry Blodgett wrote about notorious stock market bear John Hussman. Every historical indicator Hussman is looking at is suggesting that stock, the stock market is widely overvalued and headed for a period of lousy returns. How lousy? John Hussman thinks there's a good chance the stock market will soon crash 40 to 50 percent. And even if the market doesn't crash, Hussman thinks stocks are priced to produce returns of only a couple percentage points per year over the next decade far below the 7% inflation-adjusted long-term rate of return that everyone is used to and the double-digit returns of the last few years. If you want to feel comfortable and happy, go ahead and ridicule John Hussman with everyone else. If you want to prepare yourself for what seems like a likely possible stock market future, however, read on. And here's the issue with this, Matt. As Ben says... This piece was written in the summer of 2013. <laughs> this was not this year. And we all know what stocks did between 2013 and now. Yeah. Um, he says, in the following 10 years of Hussman's prediction, um, the S&P was up more than 230% in total. Did Hussman relent from his crash calling ways? No, he's still out there calling for a crash, only this time it's going to be even bigger. Quote, the S&P 500 is in a historic bubble and could crash by 63%. And that was just on October 17th where he said that. About a week or so before the bottom. Correct. Uh, ben finishes the article by saying anything is possible in the markets, but this is the problem with listening to people who predict crashes for a living. They only need to be right once in a row to get attention from the media. If you follow their predictions, the vast majority of the time you're going to be on the wrong end of history. To be clear, I'm not saying the market won't crash at some point. It can and will happen eventually. Crashes are not highly probable, but you will experience a handful of these cataclysmic events throughout your investing lifestyle. Well said. Last paragraph was very well articulated. So, um, and kind of dovetailing off of that, my second piece, Matt, is something that you had sent me earlier this week. Um, <laughs> and this was a, a tweet by Gergavin, another uh, interesting uh, Twitter or X 
uh, handle. But anyways, uh, this was on the 14th uh, of November. So just last this past Tuesday, um, you know, if you listen to the podcast over the past few months, we talked about uh, the famous Michael Burry, uh, who is a hedge fund manager who called uh, the, the 2008 global financial crisis. Uh, he came out um, and had a $1.6 billion short position on the S&P 500 and NASDAQ in August of this year. So uh, again, just very briefly, uh, when someone puts on a short position, they are uh, expecting the market to go down. Most of the time, these people are expecting the market to crash, and they make money when they are short uh, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. Correct. Um, but this guy just tweeted uh, earlier this week that Michael Burry has closed that $1.6 billion uh, short position on the S&P 500 and NASDAQ for an estimated loss of about 40%. Um, so again, just to go off of my, my first piece here, just because people have predicted crashes in the past doesn't mean they're going to be batting 100% in the future. Correct. And like we've talked about several times this year, you know, this type of news does more harm than good, in my opinion. And it's all about just getting clicky headlines when, you know, the media is, is writing this stuff and portraying it to the rest of the world. Because, you know, if you're not in this industry and you don't really know who Michael Burry is, but all you see is, hey, this guy predicted the global financial crisis and this is what he's doing right now people get nervous that's exactly what happens people get nervous so um again i don't like to you know dunk on 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 anybody that that has been wrong about market predictions but again this is why i don't like listening to predictions even the smartest of the smart yeah uh, you get it wrong just to add to it and again you did a very good job explaining that in plain english in my opinion what we don't want to see are investors with long-term goals and objectives pivot to the headline of the day that is sensationalized and then base their longer-term financial decisions on that type of headline mm-hmm. right is that a good way of saying it right unfortunately it happens yeah it does we've, and we've seen it happen um you know and obviously the hard part is okay so if you, you know you sold in august when do you get back in well that's right and uh, or if you sold out this past October, what about October from a year ago at the lows, mm-hmm. the low lows yeah. from a year ago? Right. Those are tough, tough conversations to have. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last thing I had, Matt, was uh, a tweet from Jason Gottfurt from uh, Sentiment Trader website. Um, Jason and his team puts out pretty good data and um, good content. I think it's worth people going to check out. But anyways, on November 10th, um, he had a tweet about U.S. credit downgrades. And just for a little bit of background, um, on Friday, November 10th, Matt, Moody's downgraded the U.S. credit rating from stable to negative. Okay, again, another headline that would be like, oh, my gosh, the U.S. is going to hell in a handbasket. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Jason says, before anyone panics about the ratings company downgrading the outlook on the U.S., just step back and take a look at their record. It has been meaningless for any major market since S&P's 2011 downgrade uh, nearly nailed the bottom in stocks. So uh, <laughs> they, they downgraded you know, U.S. credit in 2011, yep. and that was uh, around a, a significant market bottom. 
When it comes to individual stocks, ratings downgrades have been proof that there are analysts uh, that their analysts are no better than hindsight-looking, emotion-driven investors. This is from an April 2020 research note. And Jenna will throw this chart up on the YouTube page and in the, uh, the show notes for listeners. Um, and it shows different periods of time when uh, credit downgrades for S&P 500 companies have spiked. Got it. Um, and you can see when there have been these major spikes, the market tends to be pretty good after that, with the exception of the tech bubble in, in 2000 and 2001. There was still some more downside when the credit ratings got downgraded for these companies. But in 2009, 2011, 2016, and now in 2023, um, you know, performance looks pretty, pretty dang good. And this is a, a pretty nice indicator where, you know, it might be counterintuitive for people to think that stocks can continue to do well if credit gets downgraded. Um, but like a lot of other things in our industry, it's a, it's a, seems to be a, a great contrarian indicator. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of add to kind of sentiment in the market on a short-term basis, you're still seeing people calling what has occurred the last two weeks, a bear market rally. And you know what? I love it. I want the market to climb a wall of worry. I don't want everyone to be you know, throwing out the all clear sign, mm -hmm. you know, this is exactly what the market needs, in my opinion. And I think what could happen from here is you could have more of a stealth rally. I think that you kind of had the shock and awe period the last couple of weeks. Hope we kind of stair step higher the next several quarters. I'd be a kid in a candy store. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I will uh, turn it over to you. I got a couple interesting pieces this week. We'll see what you have to say. The first is I want to get some facts straight with our listeners and viewers about consumer credit card debt. Now, why I'm bringing this up, Mark, is if you look at a lot of the business uh, financial sites, this is getting a lot of consistent headlines lately, right? And what are you seeing? Consumer credit card debt. That yes. Is, yeah. And what are you seeing on these, uh, you know, on these, on these headlines? Consumer debt up tremendously over the past year. Consumers are overextended. You know, that's kind of the narrative, mm -hmm. right? So um, our friend Ryan Dietrich had a, uh, a tweet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him tweets for a while. So it's going to be hard to uh, change into X's. X's. So on November 8th, and this is what he said, quote, Yes, credit card debt hit another all-time high. And yes, delinquencies are starting to move higher. But credit card debt as a percentage of disposable income is still below pre-COVID levels and well beneath 2,000 levels. Mm -hmm. And he shows the chart from Fred. This is a, um, a database that is run by the uh, Federal Bank of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so people can uh, Google um, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Fred like the name Fred. I think it's Federal Reserve Economic Data. And they do, they have a, a, a very diverse database mm -hmm. of a lot of different data. Well, what um, Jenna will now put up for our YouTube viewers, this will be in our show notes and all of our social media sites, is a chart that's gonna go back approximately to, help me here, Mark, 92? 92, yeah. Okay, and it shows a percentage of disposable income, in essence, in plain English, how much of the average American consumer's income is he or she using to service their credit card debt. Mm -hmm. And guess what you're gonna see very quickly from this chart? 
Yes, if all you do is talk about the last 12 or 18 months, the percentage of what they're doing to service this debt is up tremendously. Mm -hmm. But the picture they're not telling you is when you look at this over the last several decades, the American consumer has a lot of capacity to spend. And when I look at it on paper, are there subsections of the American consumer that are struggling? Yes. As a whole, nowhere near it when you look at history. In the 2000s, it was a lot higher in, in terms of what the American consumer was spending a part of their income to service this debt. Mm -hmm. And I'm highlighting this because with two-thirds of our economy being consumer spending led, the narrative you're hearing in the market is the consumer is tapped out, pending doom is in sight. Mm -hmm. And when you look at history and you go out from just the past year, it's not accurate. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I think it just puts it in perspective because, you know, over the past couple of years, really since COVID, you know, wages have increased substantially for most subsections of American workers. Thank you for highlighting that. And since we are a consumption driven economy, if wages increase, you would expect spending to increase, right? Yes, sir. Um, you know, obviously we advocate a little differently on here to, you know, save a little bit of that wage increase and, you know, spend, you know, a portion of it. But, mm -hmm. you know, the reality of it is, is that if people make more money, they're going to be spending more money um, and they're going to adjust their lifestyle depending on how much money they're making. Um, so, yeah, I think when you're talking about credit card debt, you have to compare it to relative to income and disposable income yes, because sir. just credit card debt being at an all-time high doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to me. And when I say this following statement, this would have normal controversy if I were on a financial news network. And the statement is, the American consumer in general is just fine. Yeah, 100%. That's just my two cents. All right, my next thing I want to bring up, and this is an interesting view. The topic is corporate balance sheets. So I saw a tweet from Daily Chartbook, and the date on this was November 9th, Mark. And this is what they said, quote, U.S. companies have, in fact, seen interest expense decline by benefiting from higher returns on their cash holdings, but fixed long-term liabilities, thanks to decade of zero rates. QE, quantitative easing, effectively created an anti-bubble, and they were quoting Deutsche Bank. Now, Jenna's going to put up this chart, and I'm going to verbalize this. This is a chart that is from Deutsche Bank. And it shows U.S. non-financial corporate net interest expense as a percentage of GDI. And what I'm going to illustrate here is, even though interest rates have gone up significantly in comparison to where we were two, three years ago, corporations in general in America locked in a lot of debt at low interest rates. At some point, will that debt come due and they're going to have to roll it? And is there a chance they roll it at higher interest rates? Yes. But what's happening right now, boots on the ground, is the average corporation, like the average consumer, has a low mortgage rate locked in. They're paying little interest, and the cash they do have, they're getting five plus percent on short-term cash. And so in essence, these higher interest rates for the average corporation, so far, from what I'm seeing, has not affected them. Yeah, well, it's gonna be interesting to see if 
a lot of these corporate executives, uh, you know, CFOs and, and COOs threaded this needle on, you know, refinancing their debt when interest rates were near zero. And when that debt comes due, I think the average, you know, duration on that debt is like five to seven years. I was going to say that. Yes, sir. Um, it's going to be interesting to see that when they have to uh, reissue that debt or roll it, if interest rates come down close to zero again, and that would be just a huge oh win for, for corporate America. Yes. Not saying it's going to happen, but, um, but it's looking more and more likely, especially with the action we've seen in treasury rates just over the past month. Um, you know, those have come in significantly. And again, I'm not saying interest rates are done going up, but it's a possibility that corporate America might just thread this needle um, and, you know, that would be a good thing for, for everybody in this country. Just like the Fed has a high probability now of potentially creating a soft landing, which a year ago everyone thought was impossible. Right. All right. My next thing, this is a deep dive into the inflation data. And this is from our friend uh, Charlie Bellello on November 14th. Okay. And Jenna will go ahead and put up this chart now for our YouTube viewers so they can start viewing it. And I'm going to verbalize a couple of things from Charlie. This is a chart for our traditional podcast listeners, Mark. I would highly encourage him to go to our show notes on our various social media sites, whether it is uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. So this is what Charlie said. U.S. CPI has moved down from a peak of 9.1% in June of 2022 to 3.2% today. What's driving the decline? Lower rates of inflation in fuel oil, gas utilities, used cars, gasoline, medical care, new cars, food at home, electricity, apparel, and food away from home. Shelter and transportation are the only major components that have a higher inflation rate today than June of 2022. And I wanna note that that's even still a little suspect because shelter is lagging by what is it like six to eight months or something like exactly, that exactly looked at and if you looked at real-time shelter yes, i think you would see it's falling very quickly i love doing this podcast <laughs> with you so mark listeners and viewers is absolutely spot on and why that is important that he highlighted that in my opinion is you could see further downward pressure on this cpi number why Shelter makes up 24%. It's the largest component mm -hmm. of the inflation index. Mm -hmm. And if that comes to fruition, what you're saying, which I agree with, you could see a headline inflation number sub three and the market would flip out. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this, I won't go through each of these individually. I'm gonna cherry pick just a couple, okay? The differences from where we were in June of 2022, Mark, compared to where we're at today, okay? Let's just take one. I'm gonna take um, you know, food away from home, okay? 7.7% inflation rate at that time, year over year, we're down to 5.4. Food at home, 12.2% year over year. That's down to 2.1. So I'm gonna stop there. So. We could have people listening to this podcast right now who are thinking, well, I'm not seeing that relief when I go to the grocery store. Let's get very specific on what we're saying here. Inflation, prices have come up the last couple of years. I'm not trying to insinuate that we are gonna see prices go down or mm -hmm. revert. That would be the definition of disinflation. Mm -hmm. 
Rather, what I think is the most likely outcome, in my opinion, is prices level off and we start to normalize this inflation rate. Are we going to go sub two? That's going to be a stretch. I could see us in the mid to high twos for a little extended period of time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So again, very specific. I'm not saying you're going to go to the grocery store in six months and the price of XYZ product is going to be down by 10%. Right. We're just saying that the rate of those price increases are slowing. Well said. And it's really, it's rare for like, if people think, you know, I was listening to um, Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson's podcast uh, this morning from this week. And I think there's a perception out there that prices at some point are going to revert back to what they were prior to 2020. And that's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not I mean, happen. I could be wrong on that, but that's not how, how it works. I, I, let's put it this way. I, w I do not want to be. No in a disinflationary environment because mm -mm. you know what that smells like to me japan right japan of the of the last 25 years mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what it smells like to me right and uh, people got to think too that if you know if prices start to come in and prices start to go negative and we get disinflation then guess what that's going to ripple through the economy and people's incomes are going to start dropping too which i don't think people want no absolutely so i think you got to be careful about what you wish for because we're not saying that prices are going to start decreasing, but we would like to see prices start leveling off, which this inflation data is showing right now. And that's the sign that we're getting past this, you know, inflationary environment where inflation was the only thing that mattered. Last point. Again, if we take this into context and take a step back and think about the last 12, 18 months with where the data is at today, 12, 18 months ago, this was a pipe dream. Literally, this was on no one's bingo card that inflation was going to come in like it has. And so I just want to throw it out there that do we need to continue to watch the data? Absolutely. But just listeners and viewers, be open minded that things might not be as horrible as the media and the news outlets are making it seem from an investment standpoint. That's my message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I. I think people need to be careful about what they what they wish for, because, you know, if we do go into a, a recession and we do see unemployment spike, let's say to five, six, seven, eight percent, then that might throw us into a period of disinflation. It could because people are going to have less wages. Uh, they're going to have less um, money to spend on uh, to spend in the American economy. Um, and that's not necessarily a good thing. No, it's not. Um, I mean, so you, I don't think people should hope for that. And if you look at some of the kind of the sensitive areas on those larger purchases, look at, for example, at used cars. Those prices were through the roof. If this data shows in June of 22 is up 7.1% year over year. Used car prices on average are now down 7.1% year over year. New cars were up 11.4 in June of 22. Now they're only up 1.9. Guess what I'm starting to see? starting to see these ads for 0% interest. Mm -hmm. You know, Coming that's a back. sign that they got some inventory sitting on those lots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to uh, spike the football a little bit. And again, this is not me spiking the football. I just got lucky. But I my lease was up in March of 2020. And I wanted to buy a new a new car. And I happened to be looking in April of 2020 when they were just giving cars 
away off the lot. Literally, right? they were, yes. Um, so it's interesting now that we've gone from, you know, 0% financing virtually for everything, everything to, okay, now car loans are anywhere between, you know, 5 and 12% to now where it's like, okay, car dealerships are starting to read the tea leaves and they're like, we're going to need to start bringing back some deals. We're not going to be able to charge as much as we have um, over the past couple of years due to supply uh, chain constraints. Now that the supply chain has normalized again, you see new car prices are, are coming down significantly. To add to that real quick, you know the guy on Twitter, the car deal, the car dealership guy? Mm -hmm. Very popular, has a lot of good content in the subsection of the economy. He highlighted that the average dealer is paying double-digit annualized interest rates to fund their inventory that's sitting on that lot with where interest rates are at. Mm -hmm. So these dealers in general are very highly incentivized to be moving that moving inventory that product. more yeah. than they have been the last couple of years. Yeah, interesting. It's, and again, we talked you know, several years ago about how this pendulum switches from side to side. And, oh, yeah. and at one end, we were at the extreme where you know, car prices were crazy expensive because there was no supply. But now, since more supply has come back online, we're starting to, to sw swing the pendulum to the other side where the power is coming back to the consumer because uh, we are getting over, uh, finally, this, this supply chain constraint that we've had since 2020. Well said. So uh last thing we have for listeners this week matt um for the financial planning topic of the week is re retirement account contribution limits for 2024 so the irs uh came out with contribution limits for next year and i just wanted to uh, make sure everyone is aware of what those limits are good topic so the contribution limit for employees who participate in 401k, 403b, and most 457 plans, as well as the federal government's thrift savings plan, is increased to $23,000 per year, up from $22,500 per year. Okay. And those same uh, individuals who are age 50 and older can contribute up to $30,500 starting in 2024. The limit on annual contributions to an IRA increased to $7,000 per year, up from $6,500. And the IRA catch-up contribution for individuals aged 50 and over remains at $1,000 for 2024 for a total of $8,000 uh, that they can contribute to an IRA per year. The income phase-out range for taxpayers making contributions to a Roth IRA is increased to between $146,000 and $161,000 of income for single filers, uh, and that is up from between $138,000 and $153,000 last year. And for married couples filing jointly, the income phase-out range to be able to contribute to a Roth IRA is between $230,000 and $240,000, uh, which, again, is up from last year from uh, $218,000 to $228,000. So, um, again, if you want to contribute to a Roth IRA, there are certain income limitations. If you make too much, you can't do it. Um, and that, you know, phase out of how much you can contribute to a Roth IRA uh, starts at $230,000 for married couples in 2024, which is a, a pretty significant bump. I love that you're highlighting this. I'd throw this out there to our listeners and viewers that, you know, if they're looking for some uh, alternate ways to kind of fund these retirement accounts, you know, reach out to Taylor Ledbetter at our practice. She does a lot of the financial planning topics of the week uh, over time for our, our podcast. 
and she can talk to you about possibly things like a backdoor Roth. Mm -hmm. There's some strategies that she could uh, employ, so I'd encourage you, uh, whether you're a client or not, feel free to reach out to Taylor. She has those conversations quite often. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, before we wrap up, Matt, anything else you want to leave listeners with? No, believe it or not. We have Thanksgiving coming up. Um, you know, we're short going in trading week next week, short trading week. We're going to the end of the year. Um, I still think there's a lot of pessimism, uh, right out there in the market markets, climbing a wall of worry. Um, no, that's pretty much all I have this week. I just really enjoy doing this podcast with you. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, providing all the content that you do. Um, and if anyone else, uh, possibly would be interested in starting their own podcast, you can get your first month of Blueberry Podcasting hosting for free with promo code JESSUPWEALTH. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Use the hosting estimator on their site to determine the best plan for you. And don't forget, that's Jessup Wealth for your first month free on Blueberry. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to episode number 227 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.